0: to see you here today. Um, Diana was excited after coming home from the doctor that she, in fact, was, as she suspected, she was pregnant. And uh, when her husband got home, they had a long talk. As a matter of fact, they had several days of planning and preparation and anticipation for that great day in which their baby would arrive, and they began to sort of, you know, put all the stuff out and all the plans out in order to make ready for that arrival. And later on that week, obviously, it was Sunday morning, and she took her four-year-old son to Sunday school and as soon as she dropped him off little Johnny burst out loud she hadn't been gone very long from the room we're expecting a baby and the teacher asked Johnny if he was excited about it and he said yes ma'am I sure am I heard them talking the other day when they didn't think I was listening and I know what they are going to call him what may I ask are they going to call her if she is a girl she asked Well, my parents are going to name her Molly if she's a girl, he responded with confidence. But what if you have another little boy just like you, what will they call him, she inquired. Well, I heard them say the other night when they didn't think I was listening, that if they had another boy just like me, they were going to call him quits. Can anybody relate to that? If you had your second child first, would you have had your second You're trying to figure out how I'm going to relate to that, to what we're talking about, aren't you? It's hard for us to quit sin when we live in a fallen world, isn't it? We live in a fallen world, and we're surrounded by fallen people, and we have our own depravity, our own flesh, we have the enemy, Satan, and we have the world that is opposed to the world that we now know in Christ, and because of that opposition, we struggle on a day-to-day basis with sin. Seriously, I think most of us in here, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are well aware of our sin today. More than likely, we have bumped into our familiar sin as recently as this morning, hopefully not a few moments ago. And we know down deep in our hearts, as we described last week, that we now in Christ through faith is an atoning, redeeming work on the cross. Because he took upon himself our sin against God, we now have been endowed with the righteousness of Christ. We stand before God In a righteous standing, in a righteous position where he sees us standing upon the righteousness of Christ and we are accepted into his presence. We are received. He is our father. We have a relationship with him. But just because we have conquered sin and we now are no longer condemned by our sin. And we are filled with the empowerment and the enablement of the Spirit of God, does not mean that you and I, who live in a fallen world, are not going to intentionally, deliberately defy the authority of God and His Word and His law and sin. We are fallen people. Though redeemed, we are fallen. And because we live in a fa- fallen world, we struggle with sin. Now, some of you would like to take contention with the fact that we actually live in a fallen world. But the Bible is very clear in John chapter twelve thirty-one, where it describes Satan as the one who is the ruler of this world. That means he has complete dominance. That means he is in charge. That means he has complete influence upon the fallen world that is anti-Christ and opposed to the things of God, especially the righteousness of God. We learn in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, where Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and in that second temptation, he takes him to the mountaintop, and he displays for Jesus to see all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and he says to jesus if you will bow down and worship me i will give these to you now if satan then have the authority to give these kingdoms to jesus why would he then make that offer to christ satan is the ruler he is the prince of darkness and he is in control of this world that we live in today And we know that because it's a fallen world, it falls under the judgment of God already. For we know that in Romans 3.23, we're going to read in a minute, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We learn in Romans 6.23 that the wage or the consequence because of that sin is death. And the solution of the answer to that sin is always what we've been taught since the time we were in Sunday school as small kids. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We see that God so loved the fallen world that he sent his one and only son. Why? So that they would not perish. That means that the world that we live in today is already under the judgment of God, and they are already perishing. Why? Because of their fallen nature, because of their sin against God. They are already fallen. And so here we are. Disciples of Christ who have been redeemed by his blood, and we have been plucked out of the world that we lived in, a world filled with darkness and sin and depravity, and we have been now elevated to the position of righteousness in Christ, and yet we still are asked by the Father to be his disciples in and amongst a fallen world. The fact that we live in a fallen world should not surprise us, but what should surprise us is that there are times, if we are not careful, we will compromise our status in our righteousness with Christ, and we will befriend the world, and we will be guilty of what God reminds us through James 4.4, 4, that to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. We have a tendency if we're not careful not to swim across the tide, not to defy the laws of gravity. And we will allow ourselves to drift out of maybe exhaustion or maybe compromise. But if we're not careful, we will not continue to resist the pull and the snag and the snares of the enemy in our fallen world. And we are not to befriend the world that we live in. And yet we are told by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to live in this world and yet we are to seek righteousness. So how do we live righteously in a fallen world? How do we do that? Well, I want you to take your scriptures, if you would, and I want you to turn to the passage that we read, and we're going to look at the, at the verses this morning in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Now, before we go to our text, I want us to define what righteousness is, because it's imperative that we understand the definition of righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness simply means that we live in a right standing with God, that we, through faith in Christ, in his atoning, sacrificial death on the cross, our faith and what he did for us on that cross gives us a right standing before God. He sees us through the filter of Jesus in his righteousness, and we have access to him. We are now his children. He is our father, and we have communion with him. And we see here in this text, as we're about to read it, that righteousness is a right standing with God. But it's more than just that. It is not only a right standing before God, in which we're standing in the righteousness of Christ, but after salvation, it means that we are then to continue to walk and to live in righteousness. Once we came to faith in Christ, we were elevated out of our lostness, and we are positioned in the righteousness of Christ, set free from the consequence are the condemnation of our sin and the control of sin Endowed with the spirit of Christ within us and now we can rise above this world and we can walk and live righteously we don't have to sin we don't have to yield to temptation we don't have to say yes to the enemy and here we see in our text that righteousness is possible in a fallen world well how's that possible well, first of all, we saw last Sunday. We're going to recap for just a minute that righteousness first of all is realized in the sacrifice of God. It is first realized in the sacrifice of God. Look at verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, "Do not think that we have come to abolish that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." He came to fulfill the law. As we saw last week, in a moment of recap, I want us to understand that he came, first of all, to restore the law and the prophecies back to the original intent that God designed when he gave them to his people. You see, they had taken what God had given to his people so that they could live righteously, and they had degraded them to the point where they no longer represented the intent that God had for the law. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had so distorted the law in his contemporary setting of the day of Jesus in which they were no longer representative of the will of God. That's why Jesus in the next couple of verses is going to say, hey, you think that, that, that uh, murder uh, is an anger, but anger and murder are the same. He says, you think that you've not committed adultery, but if you have lusted after someone's wife, you have committed it. He begins now to reset And to restore what God originally intended. What we also see, and we saw in this text, to fulfill means to reinstate man into the righteous standing that he once enjoyed before the fall in the garden. Now imagine Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were given free reign in the Garden of Eden, but they were told they could not do one thing, which is what? Eat from the forbidden fruit. Was it an apple? We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but we know that they were forbidden to eat from that fruit. Eve, while she conversed with the enemy, Satan, did so in the presence of Adam, because Adam In the Hebrew text, in that text indicates that Adam was present during that conversation and he didn't pipe up and help Eve resist temptation. But together, they defied the authority of God. They disobeyed God's command and they took what was forbidden. And from that point on, man became sinful. We are now born sinners because of the choice of one man named Adam. And Adam and Eve were what? They were released, kicked out. And removed from the garden and their relationship with God from that point on forever changed as ours did and Jesus now is coming to restore mankind back to the original design that God had when he made Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden and he walked with them and he had communion with them and here we see that he came to fulfill the law and the prophecies well, what does that mean exactly? We saw last week how he came then to be the promised Savior. He was the Messiah. We saw how John the Baptist declared as he pointed to Jesus to his followers who were there who had gathered to watch him and hear him preach. He, as he pointed to Jesus, he said, there goes the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb who came to take away the sin of the world, the one that was promised in the Old Testament prophecies. Not only was he the promised Savior, but he was the perfect Son. We saw how he was perfect in all his ways. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that Peter describes him as a lamb without sin, without blemish, and without a spot. We learn in 1 Corinthians 5 1, where Jesus knew no sin so that he might become the righteousness of God. Why did Jesus live 33 years? You ever wondered that? I mean, being who he was, he could have died at five years old on the cross and accomplished what needed to be accomplished. And yet he lived 33 years. I think the reason he lived 33 years was to demonstrate to us that he, like we, It is possible for him to live a righteous life. He set for us an example. And in 33 and a half years, not one time did he ever disobey or defy the authority of God that is described in the standard of righteousness in his laws. He obeyed every single law to the letter in which God intended it to be. He was the lamb of God who was perfect. He was the perfect son who was able then to die on a cross for our sin against God. And when we put our faith and trust in that work that he did on the cross, he then is able to die for our sins. He didn't die for his sins because he was perfect, but he died for the sins of those of us who would place our faith and trust in him as our savior and our Lord. But we saw also that he was also the sacrificial provision of God. He was the provisional sacrifice. We see it in the text. It's up there on the screen. And I'm just going to read the whole text very quickly. And uh, there's a word that I skipped last week that I want us to review today. Look at Romans 3, beginning with verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Jesus is the object. He is the center of all of the writing of the Old Testament. Note at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Notice the words for all in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and, and I'm going to include the word all here, and all are justified, all of us are justified the same way, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as, notice, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a is is a is a great, great word. And if you have a translation that that sort of changes that word, you, you need to get a better translation. Propitiation is a great word. What that word simply means is this that when Jesus died on the altar on the cross of Calvary, when he took upon himself your sin and my sin, those of us who put our faith and trust in him, he bore the full brunt of the wrath of God. God is all-knowing, so he knows all of our sin, past, present, and future sins. And he took all of our past, present, and future sins, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, and he died for those sins, and through that death, he received the full brunt of all of the power of the wrath of God, and he died in our place, remember when uh, the movie a couple of years ago came out uh, entitled Jesus. And for the first time, um, as Mel Gibson had that movie out, I think. And, and I was only able to watch it once. And I have a copy, and I think I've told you this before, that's still in its wrapping and it sits in my, in my office. I, I've not looked at it, unwrapped it, and looked at it a second time. It's not one of those movies you buy popcorn and sit there and watch. And for the first time, I begin to understand the reality, or at least somewhat the reality, of what it meant for Jesus to absorb the full punishment of the total wrath of a a sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And that wrath brought Jesus his death for our sin. And once we place our faith and trust in him, He absorbs the wrath that we should have received, the punishment that we should have received on that cross. Have you ever been to a place where you were invited to do some manual labor and uh, you got there late, and by the time you got there, all the work was done? Anybody ever done that other than me? Did you plan it? You know, I've learned that uh, when people invite you to, to move or to come work on their house, if you get there late, All the work will be done and you can enjoy the festivities and the food and the drinks that come afterwards and there's nothing to be done well here's how salvation works when you finally recognize your sinfulness and realize that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and you then turn to him as a solution to your sin and trust his atoning sacrificial death on the cross where he took upon himself your sin against the father and died on your behalf Absorbing the full wrath of God that was rightfully yours to receive. He received it for you. It's like when you get to that cross, that moment of salvation, you get there and you come to the cross and you say, Jesus, what do I need to do? And he looks at you and he says, you don't have to do anything. The work has been done. There's nothing you can do. It's all been done. And he did it on the cross for those of us who put our faith and trust in him. The work has been done. And now through faith, we have now received the righteousness of Christ. And we now have a righteous standing before God. So we talked about the reality of the sacrifice of God. But let's talk about Jesus now, who is the righteousness of Christ, in that he, in his righteousness, raised the standard of God. He raises the standard of God today. How does he do that? Let's look at the verse. Let's look at all the verses, first of all. It says here in the text, in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here, it's interesting to me where Jesus has just talked about him being the reality and the realized, the present reality of this incredible sacrifice that would be for the atonement of their sin against God. If they would put their trust in him, he now raises the standard of righteousness back to the level that God intended when he gave it to his disciples to his people in the Old Testament Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries Now see yourself in the contemporary place of Christ. If you were present at that day, the scribes and the the Sadducees and the Pharisees had taken the commandments that God had given them and they had diminished them. They had lowered them down to a reality that they could grasp and they could fulfill in and of their own effort. Consequently, when they came to Jesus and they had battles with him, he constantly called them hypocrites. He called them vipers. He called them guys who had taken the word and who had distorted the word of God. And so Jesus now saying, not only am I the standard of righteousness, but I want you to see that I am elevating the standard that God set in his word. Now, why would Jesus elevate the standard of righteousness? And why is it important for that to happen for us even today? Because as we elevate the standard of righteousness, not diminish it to fit or to suit our cultural tendencies, as we elevate the standard of righteousness, that allows me and enables me to see my sin and my need for a savior. Because if I can diminish the standard of God to a level in which I can perform it without a Savior, then I won't turn to a Savior. And so Jesus is raising that standard in order to draw the attention of those who are there to Him as the solution for their inability to meet the standard. And here we see that He raises the standard. And the standard is found in the Scriptures. Yes, the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, how many of you find part of the Old Testament boring? Come on, be honest. You find part of the New Testament. How many of you spend most of your time reading the Bible in the New Testament? The Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. Because Jesus is speaking here about the Old Testament. And he's saying there's a standard of righteousness in the Old Testament that still has value then and today. Because that standard elevated to the place where God intended helps us recognize our sin and our need for a Savior. And as he elevates the standard, he talks about here the enduring value of the standard found in the Scriptures. There's an endurance about the scriptures that, that will never come to an end. Notice what he says in the text. For fully I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says, truly I say to you. Truly I, Jesus, the, the, the one who has the authority, I, Jesus, am being truthful to you. Jesus is saying, what I am saying to you is reliable. Pay attention. It's like he's saying to his disciples, there are classes in session, you need to take notes because this is going to be of such significant value to you, you're going to want to know what is being said and study it later. Because there's a reliability about what I'm saying here. It's not only truthful, but it's targeted to a special audience. He said, I say to you, who is he describing? Who is he addressing? He is addressing his disciples. For those of you who are my disciples, I am telling you the truth. He's addressing the disciples, not just the 12, but all of his disciples. So the word here is addressed to any of us here who is disciples. It's, and we're going to see this throughout this, these two verses. The you is addressed to the disciples. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the pastor, are you a deacon, are you a life group teacher, are you a mom or a dad or a grandpa. It is to every single disciple, regardless of your rank or your position in the church. It's to every Christ follower. I truly say to every one of you who is my disciple that my standard is timeless. Notice he says, until heaven and earth pass away. He's talking about the end of time, when the world comes to an end. He said, my truth, my word, this standard that God has set is of such value that it is timeless, and it will last until the end of the universe. The word of God will stand until the end of the universe time as we know it the word of God is enduring it is timeless and it will last and it will survive all the critics and all the unbelievers and all the degenerates that want to distort and 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 ridicule the word it is timeless but notice he said it's also trustworthy he says not an iota not a dot will pass away from the law and I could tell you what those words mean but here's what he's saying he's saying even the smallest letter and even that letter that has a little curlicue on it in the original language, even that little curlicue is divinely designed by God to be there. For the word of God is truth without any mixture of error. It is the infallible, it is the inerrant word of God and everything that we held in our hand called the word of God is there by his design. All of it. All of it, not the parts that we agree with, but even the parts we may want to disagree with. For it is all, every single letter down to the little curlicue on top of that letter, it has been designed by God and is intentional. And you can trust what it says, every single letter, even every single curlicue. Why should we trust it? Because it brings about a transformation in the lives of those who trust it. Notice he says that it will not pass from the law until it is what? Until it's accomplished. That means that the scriptures, the scriptures are moving the world, the universe, and those of us who are his disciples toward a purpose and a plan that cannot be thwarted by anyone. For God who is sovereign is also almighty and no one is going to be able to thwart, to stop, or to hinder or prevent the word of God from being fully accomplished. It's transformational and it moves us into the purposes and into the will of God. And the reason why it should be significant in our lives, and it should be the priority, I think, even of our worship today. And when many churches, I read, I, I, read, I was talking to a guy the other day who, who, who wanted me to, well, we we're talking about a church that was pastorless, and um, we were reading on that, and, and they prided themselves of, of sermons that only lasted 20 minutes. Now, before you break out in applause and amen, I'm glad I'm a part of a church that doesn't thrive on 20-minute sermons. Because, you see, the Word of God is God-breathed. And Timothy said it is useful for training in righteousness. And the reason why the churches are in the condition we're in today and the, and the disciples are in the condition they are today, where right and wrong is being skewed, is because we're not valuing the enduring Word of God. We have diminished the scriptures in their value, and we don't see them as enduring. Well, you know, we live in a different culture today, Pastor. And what was wrong 20 years ago is right today. So culturally, you know, we should, we should change with our culture. But the Word of God is enduring. It is the same yesterday, it will be the same today, and it will be the same tomorrow. God's will, His Word never changes. It is constantly, continually the same, and it wants to move us into the righteousness that Christ has elevated us to in order to live out the reality of that relationship with God. And here we see the enduring value of the standard in which we find in the Scriptures, but we also see the educational value of the standard found in the Scriptures. There's an educational value. In other words, the Scriptures educate us. In other words, the Scriptures tell us what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. It's like basketball. I played basketball in high school, a little bit in college. Uh, I still, you know, if I'm, you know, I'm an old guy who thinks he can still play. Uh, you know, I've learned that Advil now doesn't even help after we play. Takes four or five days to recover. You know what I'm talking about, Mark? Yeah. Um, but I know that in basketball, there's a boundary. There's an out-of-bounds and an inbounds. And when the ball goes out-of-bounds, you stop playing, you put it back in bounds. The scriptures tell us where the boundaries are. You know what? There are a lot of people in our world today who don't like boundaries. There's a lot of disciples who don't want Jesus to put boundaries on them, and there are a lot of disciples who don't want Jesus and his scriptures to put boundaries in the choices that they make because they want to be free. But notice what the scripture says in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, huge statement by Jesus, one word, but it's huge. He said, as a result of what I've just said, My disciples are to elevate the word of God to the place in which God intended. As you elevate my word to the place that I intended, and you hold it up high, therefore, because you do that, don't relax, don't compromise. Notice he said, therefore, whoever, that whosoever or whoever there is basically uh, including of all disciples. It's a word here that doesn't exclude anyone. Any disciple of Christ, any disciple, whether not just the pastor, not just the life group leader, not just a small group teacher, not just a DU teacher. That's why the Bible says it's better for you not to become a teacher of the word because you're going to be held accountable for what you teach. And he's saying that whoever... Regardless of your rank or your responsibility in the church, whether you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent, whoever you are as a disciple, if you relax one of the least of these commandments, just one, if you relax them, what does relax mean? It means to untie. It means to let loose. It means to free. Here's what it means. God's word gives us a boundary. And the tendency that we have is to take the boundaries that God gave, which is what the scribes and the Pharisees did, rather than tightening up the ship, they released them. They began to expand the boundaries that God gave. They just began to shift those boundaries. And what God never intended became what they said God intended. That's why Jesus didn't conform to their traditions and their practices. There's a time when he was... You know, eating without washing of hands, and it's always a good thing. We talked about that the other day, you know, and we talked about ceremonial cleanliness. God didn't, Jesus didn't follow those standards, but you see, they took those standards and and they began to shift them. And all of a sudden, in that shift, they relaxed, they released people, and they basically incited sin. They relaxed. Notice it said relax, one. Just how, how many, how many can you relax? Just one, he says. You would think, you know, well, if you relax five or 10 or 40 or 50, then you're going to, you know what I'm saying? God's going to get you, you know, you're going to be in trouble. One, God will tolerate one. Two, he might sl- let you slide with two. Three, you're getting a little bit dangerous before. Here he comes. No, he says One. If you take one of the principles and the precepts that are found in the law that that has elevated the standard of righteousness that God has set in Christ, if you just take one of them and you shift just one of them, even if it's the the least of these in the Hebrew tradition in which Jesus found among his contemporaries, they had ranks, you know, they, they took the commandments and they ranked them. In other words, there were some that were really not significant and there were some that were more significant. Imagine that. God sees all of his Commandments the same That's why he said anger and murder Are the same that's why he said lust And adultery are seen by God as the Same because you have committed adultery With her in your heart You see And here they were they were relaxing They were letting loose they were Minimizing even The smallest you know Jesus uh, When when he was teaching somebody came and said which is the greatest commandment And he said love your neighbor as yourself, but first love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Didn't he? Love God and love your neighbor. Those are the highest. And then there were others as they rank and follow them. And so Jesus is addressing his contemporaries that, hey guys, you got some down here that you claim to be the smallest, most insignificant of the commandments of God. God sees them all the same, but you, you put them down here. Even if you take those that are, you consider down here and you change them one degree Uh, You violated my command. These people were practicing what God never intended. But notice also not only the compromise that existed among the leaders of that day and the religious people of that day. Notice, and they teach others to do the same. Not only are they practicing this compromise, that there's a sense of coercion here where now as they are practicing, they want others to follow their example. Darkness always likes company. Sin always likes a crowd. No one wants to sin alone. They want to take you with them. And these people, because they have compromised and lowered the standard of God, they are now coercing people to follow their example. They are indoctrinating these people in false doctrines and false practices. And now there are people who are following them as they are doing the same. And now they have become their disciples. They are discipling people to disobey God. They are discipling people to incite them to sin. But Notice the consequences of those who do that. What's the consequence? You will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You will be as a promise. It's a promise. You will be. If you relax just one of those principles, just one of those commandments, and you you move it away from where God originally did, just one, well, I'm going to give you a promise. You will be called. Who's going to call you least in the kingdom? Not the pastor, not your mom, not your dad, but God. God is the one who sits as a sovereign Lord of Lords and King of Kings as the judge. And it is God who will call you least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you will forfeit some of the reward that you would have received in heaven had you not compromised and coerced others into following your bad example and your unsound doctrine. You know, there's a lot lost when we do that. There's joy there's the fruit of the spirit there's the blessing of god and the, you know the beatitudes are all about favor and blessing blessed are you right and so when we compromise just one just one you think well it's not a very big one it's just one you know we're really good at picking the big things out i mean honestly aren't we we're big at picking the big things out and we're good at throwing rocks and stones at those that compromise what we consider the big sins murder, like abortion, like adultery. But what about lying? What about gluttony? What about lust? What about greed? I mean, I can, I can sit here and name sin after sin after sin that we don't equate those as the big sins because we don't want to do that because why? <laughs> ain't my brother, ain't my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. I'm going to feel a little bit guilty about my unrighteousness and i they're going to have to ignore it or do something about it because murder and anger, according to the word that Jesus is about to give them, is the same. Adultery and lust, in God's eyes, is the same. That's why we all need mercy, and we all need grace, and we all need a Savior. Well, the educational value is it gives us the boundaries, but notice the enriching value. There's something that that we benefit by because of having done that. Notice the scripture says, but whoever... That's the inclusion in the blessing. God is including his disciples in the blessing. For those of us disciples who don't compromise, for those of us who don't coerce others into unsound doctrine and unbiblical practices, for those of us he includes us, whether we're a a pastor or a life group leader or a mom or a dad. Let me say something here for just a second. Moms and dads and grandparents, you have a responsibility to disciple your own children. It is not the responsibility of the church to disciple your kids. More is caught at home than it is taught in church. And we have a responsibility here that whoever, mom, dad, pastor, life group leader, children director, Awana, whatever it is, but whoever does them, we must be intentionally practicing the righteousness of Christ. Christ because we positioned now in a position of righteousness now doesn't give us the freedom to just go out and live life free and void of boundaries. I'm not working for my salvation. That's not why I'm obeying God. And I'm not obeying God just, just so I can bring favor to myself. I'm obeying him because I love him. You know, there's some people say, well, you know, if you talk this way, you're going to give people, you know, a bad sense of themselves. But the reality here is that we have a standard. He said, but whoever does them, Jesus is addressing his disciples. And he said, as a disciple of Christ, we need to follow the example of Jesus who was perfect in every way according to the letter and the promises, the prophet's writings. And if he was perfect, then we should desire and strive for perfection. It's not a reality, is it? Because we all know in this room, I'm the only one perfect here. I'm the pastor. There was only one perfect person, and his name was Jesus. And while we can never attain perfection, we should still strive to practice righteousness. There's no excuse for the disciple of Jesus, who wants to follow in his footsteps, who is righteous in every way. And notice, we must also teach them righteousness. There's an investment from the disciple in which the disciple is investing in the lives of others so that as I practice, I then proclaim it. You can't proclaim what you're not practicing or you'll be called a hypocrite. Mom and dad, you better practice what you preach to your kids because they'll see your hypocrisy. Grandparents, they see when you're in that car and you lose your anger and you fly off the mouth some words that are not acceptable. They see those, those inconsistencies. What do you do when I'm inconsistent? Well, be very quick to admit your inconsistency, your weakness, your sin, your failure to live up to the standard and ask for their forgiveness. Don't sit piously by and act like, well, it's not that important. We need to Invest in others so that they then can only know Christ and receive his righteousness but can live righteously as well and i notice the impact of those of us who do that they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven they will be those who practice this and who proclaim it. they will be. That's a promise from God. You can count on His promises being fulfilled. They will be called by who? By God Himself, who alone is the judge, who judges us and sent His judgment over our lives. He, God, will then call you great. Their standards of rewards in heaven. and their level of responsibilities here on Earth. And to whom much is given, much is required. And when God entrusts us with his word, he will reward those of us who, while we may not be perfect, are at least striving to be honest and to be humble enough to seek the righteousness that he deserves and demands. When Jesus in Matthew 4 was having a problem with temptation, after 40 days and 40 nights in Matthew 4, Hungry, thirsty, physically exhausted, emotionally drained, preparing for ministry, Satan came. Tempted him three times. With the first temptation, how did he battle that temptation? He said, it is written. He turned to the Word of God. He turned to the standard of God, the standard of righteousness. When he came with the second temptation, how did he resist and defy the enemy? He said, it is written. He turned to the Scriptures, and he looked to the Scriptures for strength. In the third temptation, he did the same. It is written. Every time Jesus, who believed and who trusted and who proclaimed the Word, put his personal faith in the inerrant, the infallible, the trustworthy Word of God. And if we as disciples do anything less... How can we be his disciples? And in the moment of temptation, and when you live in this world that's fallen, and you're rubbing elbows with a fallen world, and the flesh is rising up, and the enemy is whispering temptations in your ear, pulling you in a direction that you know you should not go, and the world is clapping and applauding the direction that you're trying to make, how do you resist You turn to the standard that is in his word and you don't compromise. You don't negotiate. You don't move. You stand with Christ on his inerrant, infallible standard. Because it's that standard that helps me see that I can't live up to it without his righteousness and without his empowerment and enablement through the spirit of Christ dwelling in me to make that a reality so here as we close how can I rise or raise the standard of righteousness number one take it as God's word take it as God's word what is this are you sure really is this God's word do you treat it as his word I'm convinced the majority of us probably spend five minutes or less a day in his word. I'm not talking about just reading it for information. I'm talking about digesting. it. In Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel ate the word, didn't he? Why did he eat the word? He internalized it. In John's beautiful gospel in the book of Revelation, he also ate the word. He found it bitter. Ezekiel found it sweet. Sometimes it's bitter. Sometimes it's sweet. But we've got to internalize the word. And that's where we're going next week. That was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes. They did not see that the transformation takes place on the inside first, then happens on the outside. We've got to take it and internalize it. We've got to trust it as God's way. We've got to trust the way that God leads us. I know it defies sometimes gravity. Sometimes it defies reason. Sometimes it defies understanding. Sometimes it will defy our culture, our community, our loved ones, even our life group. But we've got to trust that God's way is the right way and it's the way that his disciples live by. All of it, not just the parts that we want. We've got to transfer it in our walk. It's got to translate into application to where I know what it says, but I'm living out the reality of what it says on a day-to-day basis in my life. As a student pastor, one of the greatest dangers that I saw in helping students become Christ followers was that many parents did not practice what they preached in their home. There was no transformational aspect about applying the Word of God as the parents lived out in their lives. There's got to be an applicational part where I allow the word of God to correct and to rebuke and to steer and to guide and to lead and to mold and to conform me into the likeness of Christ. And as a parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a teacher, a student of the Bible, I need to teach as God's will, uncompromisingly, standing on the truth, proclaiming it, with every ounce of energy I have, telling others as a witness of God about not only the gospel of Jesus, but about the word of truth. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. What? Is it? Righteousness as we close. What is righteousness? In our slide, as we see righteousness, first of all, is received through the sacrifice of Christ. You cannot be righteous on your own. The standard has been raised so high by Jesus and the life that he lived that it's to help you see your need for Christ because there's no way in the world in all the work ethic that you might possibly exhibit and all the discipline that you might try to maintain and all the knowledge you might try to achieve. In spite of all that, you could never measure up to the righteousness required by the scriptures and by the standard of righteousness with his God himself. We need a savior. And Jesus became that sacrificial lamb of God who took upon himself our sin. And I need to receive that righteousness from him. And the only way to receive it is to take my unrighteousness and lay it on him on that cross. And then rest in that work that he did for me. And then as I walk... In this new position of righteousness, I then raise the standard without compromise, the standard that God elevated the scriptures, and I seek to live out what he's asked me to live, which is a life of righteousness. Where are you today in this subject of righteousness? What is God speaking into your life today? What transformational work does he want to do? This is not just an exercise for knowledge or entertainment, but a time of interacting with the Word of God to understand the will of God as God begins to work through his Holy Spirit. What's it communicating to you today? What decision do you need to make? I think all of us. Could make life changing, life transformational decisions today. For none of us, I don't think, are immune, including me, who's almost perfect from seeking a greater righteousness in my thoughts, in my feelings, in my actions, and my attitudes, and in the life that I live.
1: Let's pray.